0: thank you guys thank you all um okay so you might wonder how this girl with a funky accent can be sharing some of this stuff that i'm going to be sharing uh, yes i'm originally from mexico and basically after graduating from harding school of theology is how what well, actually during my internship time is how i got um involved with hope Works and also the exchange family center and so basically after graduation they were like the job is yours, and I just could not have ever guessed for any better places to work, because I love both agencies a lot. Um, but the main reason for why I decided to, you know, accept um, the invitation to speak here is because, at first I thought, okay, I, I, I don't really have much experience, but I have a lot of contact with the HopeWorks students that have been there, done that, um, and who've taught me a lot, a lot. Um, and so those are some of the things that I, that I hope to share with you today um, as a person, as a clinician, as just another human being that cares for um, helping more people. Okay, louder. Um, so anyways, at HopeWorks, when you consider both uh, the male and female students, um, and you've heard a lot of HopeWorks already. When, when, when you consider all of the students that are involved, we know that about 60% of them have had a criminal history. Um, most of them come from poverty, and many of them have gone through many, many, many hardships prior to their arrival to HopeWorks. Um, being involved um, in helping those that frequently our community believes should be punished for a long time, which then leaves very little room for restoration, can be very hard and sad, but absolutely worth it. So here I am to share part of what I've learned from them and with them. Um, One of the misunderstandings, first, one of the misunderstandings that I've I've learned a lot that our our community has is, well, basically, how can these people not get it together? Why don't they put it together? Why can't they just get a job and, you know, move on and be productive citizens? Um, And whatever other, the thought with, usually with a judgmental sense, might be. However what we know is that the reality of them is not that easy. It is not so easy to to find those resources that they need, the support that they have also. Um, One of the realities is that a very large proportion of the incarcerated come from poverty, which makes it more difficult for them to find resources and a new way to get out. Navigating the system is incredibly complicated if you're in poverty, how can you find or afford a lawyer that would help you out of there, that would help you clean your record, that would help you understand why in the world those documents say that I myself don't even understand. I, I, I also needed a lot of help in, in, you know, when helping the students in that sense. Um, and basically, you have no money or, you know, therefore no lawyer. Therefore, when you walk out, it's a lot more difficult to find help um, and that's even if you can find the help and the resources. Um, at HopeWorks, I've, I've heard multiple stories of different male and uh, female and, and, and male students that share their walk on how they are trying to find jobs, how they are trying to, to, to make it. And one after, I mean, they've been in prison, they know I have to do something better because most likely I'm going to end up back there. Um, And whenever they try to look for jobs, it's just another slam on the door and how dare you to come here um, and apply with those um, type of answers, which can be incredibly depressing when you're already struggling with a bunch of other things that have gone through your life, that that you have experienced in your life. Um, So when we look at people that have experienced incarceration and their families and their surroundings, we know that the majority of them, have a very difficult time transitioning out of all of that, learning how to navigate all of those all of those systems that they have to deal with, um, and when we put that plus the poverty side, it just makes it incredibly challenging for them. Um, so there's a lot of poverty, there's a lot of challenges, and there's also a lot of people in there, a lot, a lot of them. Um, what we know um, from recent statistics is that there's about 1.5 million incarcerated individuals. 92% of them are males and about 8% are females. Of those, more than 2.7 million children in the U.S. have an incarcerated parent. That is about one in 28 children. Of those, one in nine African American, one in 28 Hispanic, one in 57 white kids in the United States have an incarcerated parent. And approximately half of the children with incarcerated parents are under about 10 years old, a time that is so critical for the development of a child. Um, so when considering all of those numbers, in general, one in 28 have an incarcerated parent, one would wonder, okay, well, who then ends up taking care of all of these kids? You know, How in the world does that happen? And a recent study made in 2007 indicated that 25% of the children live with the, fa- with the father uh, when the mother goes to prison. 90% of the children remain with their mothers when the father is incarcerated, which also makes sense because the majority of the incarcerated people are males. Um, 50% of the children with an incarcerated mother live with their grandmothers. These percentages make it easy to see how we are as a society really easy to punish um, those that we think deserve it and sometimes they do Well, the majority of the time they do um but that we can also see that there is something lacking in our community that is making ma- very difficult this time of prevention and also treatment you know helping them throughout the process when they are in those in those situations um, according to the to the reports that we have even for the government and other private agencies we know that a lot of the kids that have an incarcerated parent end up also incarcerated themselves. Um, and besides that part, they also have other vicarious, um, negative consequences, even though uh, they are usually at no fault of what their, pa- their parents did. But still, they end up being a lot more likely to end up in dealing with homelessness, mental health, social, <laughs> physical, and developmental issues. There are reports saying how traumatic it is for the children when they also witness when the parent is, is, in, is handcuffed and taken by the police. Once the parent is away, it is common for these kids to also experience traumatic grief. And I'm going to show you a little in a little longer video that also shares a little bit more of that. Research also indicates that when children experience trauma, there are negative effects physically, emotionally, cognitively, and this tends to put them at even higher risk for mental health, developmental, and social issues. Working at HopeWorks, um, once they are adults and have also gone through that process as a child, and as children themselves, has also allowed us to see how painful all of that process is, how, um, how damaging it is for a person to go through that when the person they're supposed to love you the most sometimes can't be there. And sometimes because of whatever other reasons other things that they've been dealing with just don't want to be there too it's the reality so, yes uh, you know another thing these children of incarcerated parents are not getting parenting no yeah and that's where i'm going yeah okay yeah yeah Go ahead. yeah caregivers also experience a lot of negative effects due to the incarceration of the family. So it's the children and also the caregivers. It tends to generate difficult feelings like anger, frustration, helplessness, resentment, fear, guilt, and shame. Extra work and stress for the caregivers also is there in various areas like financial difficulties, emotional difficulties, social, with tons of the stigma that they get to. Um, and you can, there is a um, I know that you may also want to start looking for resources. There's a wonderful website called um, Echoes of Incarceration. um, And that is a website put together by actually the children of the incarcerated parents that just want to put a voice of what is it they go through. How is it from their perspective to how how all of these um, numbers with the reality, how they affect them, and then how also it affects the caregivers. So if you want to learn a little bit more, you want to share with your churches, you know, as as we are also trying to be that bridge uh, of knowledge, that's a wonderful website that you can check. Echoes of incarceration. Sorry. That's the one. Wonderful website. Um, according to the U.S. government, the main elements to receive to reduce recidivism are employment, education, and family support. However, how can they be you know how can they um, have that family support when they are just relearning how to be on their feet back again? Also, how can they be united with their families and have that support when? I mean, if it's been a year, 15 or 20 years, and has been very limited communication too, it's kind of like talking to a stranger once again. For example, um, and that also applies to the relationship of the children with the parents that are incarcerated, and according to the US Census report in 2010, two thirds of non-custodial incarcerated parents saw their children, um, took their children to see their parents um, less than 52 days in a year, And when you put together about different statistics that are there, it's somewhere between one-third to almost half of the children that never see their, their, their mother or their father when they are in prison. Never. Not even once. And for those of you that have children, can you imagine what it would be like to not be in the life of your child for at least one year? No contact, no phone call, no letters, no conversation, no touch for one year you can start imagining how, you know, how difficult that is for them. Of course, it is also important to, to consider and to talk about what are some of the reasons for all these very limited contact that they have with them. And they have various hurdles to, to jump for, for those visitations to happen. Um, on one hand, like we already are talking about the poverty context limited transportation options. Um, most of the prisons end up being very far away and bu- usually the buses don't go to those places. Um, and there's also the part of the, the schedules for the visits, the school schedule for the children and the work hours for the caregivers, um, if they can even afford, you know, making that trip. Caregivers also tend to fear how the visitation or the knowledge that the, the father or the mother is incarcerated, how that would affect the children. Um, and that also affects the low frequency of those visits. There's also a lot, of, a lot of pain in that process of visiting. And to some degree, the ignorance of not knowing how to share that part with your children, what would be the best way to do it, can also keep them from sharing the reality with them. So. Here's the first resource that I would like to share with you that would illustrate a little bit more of what they go through. room my mom before it was just a lot of stuff like i just i was just crying i didn't know what to do like i destroyed my whole room i was mad because i didn't know what to do i was confused but i didn't know what happened at the time started going past like yeah i cried for me being with my mom but as i visit her it's different i feel the general public does not understand visiting they assume that anyone who's inside is a criminal and then by by extension is an unfit and bad parent. When I go up there and I see the prison in like, eye distance, I feel like, damn, I'm really about to see my mom, and all happy, joy gets inside of me. And when I see her, this, when I hug her, I don't want to let go. There's nothing like touching your mom and talking with your mom and sharing updates on life and just interacting with your mom in person. My favorite part is when I get to see her and when I um, get to read her books. Visiting is so important for so many reasons. It minimizes the trauma of the separation. It's so important to help that child just to the separation and also try to understand it. As a child, you know just a few things, good guys, bad guys. You know that the police takes away the bad guys. It's difficult to understand those things as they happen. I know she's still here. I can still talk about my problems. She's still my best friend. As long as I can visit her and feel her touch, eat with her and just chill with her, that's what I'm at. And I think caregivers need the same thing other people in stressful situations need, which is being around other people who have the same experience. I joined quite a few groups. I acquired a lot of knowledge, and that also kept me going. To so hear your differences, senses, be able to talk about it. We share whatever we go through, we laugh, we cry, we eat. But, uh, yeah, I think it's important to get support from others. In an ideal world, um, a society that does not stigmatize, in an ideal world, a, a systems that actually focus really on the best interests of the children and give all the support to those who are taking care of them. The only thing that I can say, um, you love your child, your grandchild, and don't give up because there's hope. that's only a bit of what this wonderful website has that I wanted to share with you. Um, so, when talking about what what the really painful experiences that these children and caregivers go through, um, and when doing all this research, I was like, you know what? I also work at HopeWorks. I can get first-hand um, ideas, um, stories that, that can that can they sh- that they can share and possibly bring also some light to. Um, what we are trying to learn how to do better. So um, when I just asked the Hopper students about their perspective, I was actually able to get the three different groups that are uh, involved in all of this big picture. Um, and some of them were also children of incarcerated parents, some of them were the caregivers, and some others were the incarcerated parents themselves. So. I, I wanted, you know, I went and asked them and they were so gracious to, say, to share some of, their, some of their perspectives and I would like to share this with you because I think it also continues bringing extra light to what we do um, and changes the perspective. Um, when I asked those that as a child had an incarcerated parent some of the things that they said are the following. It would have been nice to have contact with my parent but at least my grandmother kept me informed of what was going on. My mom was incarcerated when I was 11 years old. I was able to have phone calls with her. I loved hearing her say, I love you, and I'll be there soon. I treasure our pictures a lot. I cried a lot after each phone call and visit. It was very stressful, but I'm so glad I was able to have it because I loved my mom. I gave birth to my first baby when I was 17. It was incredibly painful not to have my mom with me. She was locked up for eight months. My baby daddy didn't want me to to take my baby to see my mom either. Eventually, I asked the people um, at the prison for a special permission to take my baby with me. They were very helpful and made special arrangements for my baby to go in. Today, I know how hard it was for my mom to go through that, and I'm so happy I decided to make that visit possible. My foster parent was very helpful in taking me to see my parents for the visit. I cried a lot. It was too hard. It was too hard to go in and be in there. So I lied and I said I didn't want to go back. I wish I had never said that. My dad was abusive towards my mom, so he ended up in jail. My mom used to take us, see him, and she would act as if nothing had ever happened, which made me so mad. I was a child, but I knew that my father's actions were bad. I hated seeing my mom pretending and lying. Those lies never helped my dad to get better either, but the opposite because he never really learned from the consequences. I still have resentment towards both of my parents in that sense, though I'm still working to be able to forgive them and move on. Another, another student said, it was really helpful to visit my mom in jail. I just wish I didn't have to, I didn't have to deal with those thick walls and glass. I wanted to hug her, kiss her. I loved getting Christmas parents that my father had made inside of the prison. They weren't big or fancy, but I loved each thing that he made. I knew my daddy had been thinking of me, and that was important, that I was important for him. (coughs) Having my daddy in jail was so hard, but my mom was my backbone, which helped me at home because you still got to press on. Saying bad stuff to your kids about their daddies is awful, the worst thing was to be compared to that one who was supposed to be the monster of the house, who was also my daddy. So that's the child perspective. From the caregiver perspective, this is what they said. My baby daddy was the main financial provider. It was really hard after he was gone. My kid would ask about her daddy. And I lied to her at the beginning because I fear how the visits would create trauma for her. Those places are filthy and scary. My ex-husband went to jail when my baby was two, but I didn't take my baby to the visits because I didn't want him to know that, li- that that lifestyle was okay or cool. Eventually, my ex-parents in law started taking him, but I was very clear and explaining to my child what behaviors were right and why we're wrong to my son. Another person said, I never took my kids to see their dad. I didn't want them to get used to that environment because I didn't want him to be there when he was older. I felt like I didn't need a man with the bad example to raise my son so I didn't take him to the visits. At first I lied to my child telling her that her daddy was working far away. One day she came and said, I know daddy is in jail. I cried a lot and then It was better for her to hear the fact, and and then I knew it was better for for her to hear the facts from me than anyone else. If she was old enough to know what jail is, then she needed to hear from me. I was five months pregnant when my daddy went to jail, when my daddy went to prison. I was so angry. Well, sorry, when my baby daddy went to prison, I was so angry. I thought it was unfair that on top of taking care of the baby alone, I had to take him to the prison. I stopped taking my child to the visits. Eventually, my mom stepped in and took my child to the visits. They said it was nice to have barbecues and games together. Outside of the prison, my father was a father figure for my son, and that was really helpful for him. My daddy went to prison when I was a child. I never imagined that my son would also have a father, his father, in prison. It was really hard to be a parent alone. I struggled a lot. Eventually, I also got into addictions and abandoned my child under the care of my relatives. I can't imagine how hard it was for him. He still struggles a lot as the consequences consequences of all of that, knowing that I as a parent contributed to it. It's been a long journey, but I'm working to better myself for him. The shame and guilt is huge, but that's something I'm working on. During Christmas season, when I would take my kids to see their dad, some volunteers made sure to give us Christmas presents for the children. That was incredibly helpful for me and for them, for the children. I, was told, I, I always told my sons, your daddy loves you. And they loved hearing that. My baby daddy sort of sent us money after having the little jobs at the prison. They were like a joke because of the little salary. But I thought, well, at least he's doing something. Comparing your children to anyone never helps. They're already struggling a lot because of their incarceration. Be mindful of that. So that was the voice of the caregivers. And then here is the voice of the incarcerated parent. When I went to prison, especially, this is particularly from the fathers, because you know that's, that's the majority of the ones that end up incarcerated. So this is what the guy said. When I went to prison, it was, oh, sorry, sorry, this is actually a mom. When I went to prison, it was all over the news and I told my sister, please don't let my kid watch the news. She agreed and was very careful, but our efforts were in vain because the teacher ended up telling my daughter. I was so mad about that. It was horrible for my child. I always hoped my child was loved and accepted in the community in spite of the mistakes that I made because it wasn't his fault. Now the voice from the fathers. I knew that my baby mama was afraid of the prison and how the business would affect my sons, but I'm so glad she was cooperative. I mean, I was in prison, I knew how awful it was in there. As a father, the last thing I wanted was for my sons to end up in such a horrible place too. I was so thankful she allowed me to be part of of my sons' lives because I was able to teach them about the choices and also had to, uh, to teach them about bad choices and also teach them how to make good choices. I was able to encourage them as they did well in school. I knew they would receive every letter I would send them and I loved every letter I got back. It helped us all. My sons never had trouble with the law. They graduated from school. One of them has a career and the other one is in college. Now that I'm out, our relationship is still strong, and I can't wait to show them how I can also make good choices. We made bad choices, but we were still willing to be there for our kids' well-being. It would be very helpful to facilitate transportation for the child to see their dad as early as possible to make the relationship stronger. As a father, one wants to provide for your kids. It hurts a lot not being able to do so, because of being incarcerated. But I wish my friends could at least help me to give them a little gift on behalf of the father. In prison you hear, I can't do anything for my kids because I can't provide. But that's, the only, but that's not the only thing to do. A relationship allows you to do a lot more. When I was called a deadbeat, I acted like it. When I was called a father, it pushed me to act like one that got me. Spending time with your child is better than buying material things. The things get old and gone, but the memories are for the lifetime. Like Brandon said, mm-hmm. Leon too. Our children, are our investment, what we put into them is what we get later, which I think in that sense, the statistics talk about that too. A relationship with them, even while in prison, allows me to share what I know with them for them to be better. They might still make mistakes too, but I'll know they have it conscious. This is possible through visits and calls. A good friend can help kids to, to get a visit. Churches and nonprofits can help with the transportation too. So those are the three perspectives, those are the three things that they share with us and I think based on the numbers that we have, one 20, in 28 kids and based on how many people are there and also based on the three different perspectives because that is the reality of the big picture, it is hard, it is hard in each one of them um, and I think there is room as we heard all of those different voices, I think there is room for, for us to help them to collaborate, for, for us to help them to to work together. No, it is not easy when you end up being the caregiver and you yourself have also gone through the trauma and then on top of that you somehow have to help your child also. Or somehow you have to work two or three jobs. I've seen it and I just can't imagine working two or three jobs and somehow still raising children especially if you're older in age. There is a lot of collaborative work to do. So since you are here you are part of that bridge, you are part of that help, you are part of what can help those parents and mothers to connect with your children and also for those caregivers to get the support that they get. So here are some of the things that, based on their research, based on their needs, based on their voices, based on the numbers, some of the practical things that we can do. One, first, there is a wonderful, wonderful website by Sesame Street. It's a wonderful, wonderful website, it's free! (laughs) <laughs> and the videos are phenomenal, and these videos are specifically targeted for how to explain to children what in the world is incarceration, how in the world can they can can they deal with that when their friends are talking about their daddies, their mommies, and they are just like, uh, I'm just gonna go out and play alone, you know? Um, so these are wonderful tools that you can that you can watch. Uh, they also have flyers, both in English and in Spanish. The videos are also in English and in Spanish. Um, And you can just start watching those. I mean, in your your Bible, in your Bible um, classes at church, if you have children with the incarcerated, I would encourage you to watch them. And maybe also, you know, watch it with the caregiver and then helping them to have their bridge so that they could also have that open relationship with the children and hear it from the caregiver or the mommy and the daddy, instead of hearing it distorted from somewhere out there. As you were watching those videos, the power, empathy and support are just, huge, huge, huge. And that is many times what the children just need and also the caregivers. So I would encourage you to go and look at them. Also, as you heard in the voices and the reality of how far the prisons are, I would encourage you to somehow start working on, on collaborating to provide children, uh, rights for the children to, to go there. Many times it's just impossible really when you have to spend a lot more money in gas and you are worrying, okay, do I feed the child? Do I spend the money in the gas? Or do I spend the money in, the, in, the, in taking the kid to the prison or paying for those phone calls? It is very challenging. So whatever ways that your church is, your nonprofit that you can provide, that you can start doing the salt and pepper shaker around your community to, to spread the word, to just share those videos so that that fear, that fear can just be tamed. And instead of living with fear, living with love and collaboration for everybody well being. Also, I would encourage you to start advocating for creating a kid-friendly environment at the prisons. Many of them, and especially um, that, that this particular um, adult that went to visit um, her mom when she was in prison, she just said, you know, I, I loved at least seeing her, but I wanted to touch her. I wanted to have that hug with her. Um, and that's the reality of many prisons. You know, it, it, they are not kid-friendly and it's perhaps even scarier. New York, those, 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 those um, rooms that you saw in the video, those are actually from New York and I think that they have a lot. We can learn a lot from them on how they are doing it because instead of them thinking about the children being further traumatized, the children are able to heal from that trauma by having that contact with their mother and by having that, that presence, that touch, that, that empowerment through um, that relationship. I would also encourage you, I encourage you to help the caregiver. A study made in 2011 with the children that had an incarcerated parent confirmed how important and valuable their relatives, churches and schools are for the children to be able to adjust and stabilize to the new life without the incarcerated parent for however long that would be. Caregiver, it's also, for, for the caregiver it's also to, uh, important to have the um, agencies that can possibly, um, I mean, so basically we want to, to connect the caregiver with the agencies that will help them. Here in Memphis there's a lot and I would encourage you to wherever in Tennessee you are or other other cities to start looking for them too. Um, because those are the agencies that are going to be able to help them to parent to care for that kid that is struggling a lot, to help themselves to deal with all of those extra traumatic things that they also go through. Uh, some of the examples here in Memphis are the Relative Caregiver Program at UT, the Exchange of Family Center where we work with the victims of trauma and abuse, um, and that includes, like in the example of the in, in the uh, example of the children that witness domestic violence, we have a therapeutic research-based program that works with the mothers and also with the children to be able to work with that. Um, there's also the program of families of incarcerated individuals that provide a bunch of different support groups and other information so they help them to navigate the system especially when you have a grandma that you know maybe she put her kids back in the 70s or whatever other time that would be and the system today is incredibly different and also very complicated they also help them to navigate all of those choices they have to make so that Instead of focusing on what in the world is this paper say, I'm going to be focusing on how can I help my child? How can I help my baby to make the transition easier? Um, also, I would advocate for, for connecting with those agencies that also provide research-based counseling. Um, especially when you're dealing with trauma, you don't want to be easy, cheap on it. Um, and those that are research-based are the ones that really have the higher success rate right, with the children and with the caregivers. Um, so some of them would include, like at least here in the Memphis area, there's Impact Missions Counseling Services. I know there are some other agencies that are willing to do pro bono, or some other counselors that are willing to do pro bono and work with with the children and or the caregiver. And um, so yeah, find that. I mean maybe, I know that sometimes there are also um, churches that sponsor the, the counseling for the family or for the children. So it is, it is important to get that. I mean, the, the effects of trauma in children is just huge. And, and I think that that reflects also the high numbers of those kids that also end up being in, in prison. So we want to be as efficient and careful as possible when providing that care. And speaking of counseling, if you have never had experience with counseling or something like that, I would encourage you to also like maybe start talking to other people that you know what it is and going for what is research-based. There's, I'm a counselor and I'm also aware of some of the bumble jumble is out there. Um, and we don't want to do extra work. We want to do the best way, informed way that we can have. And so I would encourage you to do that so that you can help them to navigate the system. What we know from HopeWorks, I mean, Ron would, would tell you as the director, one of the things that they love from HopeWorks is counseling, and I'm not trying here to boost, you know, or anything like that, um, you know, to, to speak on it on pride. But, but that's one of the things that I really love the most. Interestingly enough, those are the, that's, that's one of the things that many times they are the most reluctant about in the beginning either because they know I have to work on you know, whatever this issue is, or sometimes it's also because of misconceptions that people have about what counseling is. Many times they think of you know, the old style Freud type of thing, they're going to hypnotize me or something like that. Um, it's really scary when you think about it. I don't wanna be hypnotized and put, you know, put on a couch or anything like that, I want to know. What is going to happen? What are the steps? What are the models? What are the success rates? What is the what is the, the the supervision that's available? I want to know what tools I'm going to be equipped because talking, 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 having a cathartic moment there, it's not enough. We want to equip them with tools because at the end of the day, like that 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 student said, you have to press on. You have to press on and that's impossible to do with those tools. And those mental health related tools are possible when we are making sure that those kids also have the caregivers and the kids have that care that they need Um, so start talking to them about that too and start um, encouraging them keep them accountable for for finding that support Um, because what we know with trauma is that it affects completely the way that they see and think of the world even sometimes for the the way that they understand the Bible, what, what what the Word of God says, and so we want to be able to help them to start like you know slowly changing those distortions that they have, so that they can actually understand a little bit more the amazing and incredible loving and grace, loving grace that we have from our Father. I would also encourage you to. Maybe help a kid to get the funding of the help that he or she needs to be in the Boy Scouts, the Girl Scouts, the the Girls and Boys Club, other mentoring programs. Um, Texas is a huge, big, good example about how they do the mentoring programs over there uh, that are also research-based. And so I would encourage you to do that too because the reality is that teenagers have too much time. And too much time with a kid that is is still developing, with a kid that has gone through trauma most likely, it's just too dangerous for them to be easy praise. And we don't want them to go through that. We want them to have the tools and the the safe areas that they need to instead of increasing their chances to end up being locked up, that they increase their chances to be a son of God that lives and acts like it. also, I would encourage you to possibly have play dates, play dates with the caregivers. Uh, many times it feels, you know, just by association that the entire family is horrible and they should have no contact with good society, productive people. So encourage you, yeah, like allow them to have those play dates. Go to the park together. Um, invest, invest time in, in the caregiver, both of them. It doesn't have to be expensive, fancy. The parks are free. The dirt is there and need the kids need it, the kids need it. Um, I would also encourage you to maybe, if it's possible, to help the caregivers to have a break and possibly babysit for them at least once a month. And if they wanna nap for one hour, let them have it. They need it. Um, but most importantly, pray with them. Be with them. Um, whatever your role it may be, as either as an agency, as a church person, um, Whatever that may be, we need to have those relationships. We need to be able to collaborate, to instead of fear and shame controlling our society, that we can have the relationship, love, and compassion that we need to understand and support each other in a healthy way, in a, in a way that we can be equipped, in a way that we can be um, able to move on. Life is not easy. Life is absolutely not easy. And just by having a little pat on the back is not going to do it for whenever they have to make those, those tough choices, whenever they have to face difficult circumstances. They need to know how to do it, and the reality is that many of them don't really know how. What we, like we've, we've been hearing it here. What we, we think it's, it's easy to make those good and bad choices, but really how can you, when whoever was supposed to be taking care of you was taken away when he or she was five years old, who's going to teach you those things? Like, no one just says, okay, now, here's this job application, go in your job and do it now, when you can barely read. It makes no sense. So it's important to be as informed and as collaborative as we can give, as we can be for the well-being of those children, the caregivers, and also the incarcerated people. Because we have plenty of people in there, and we need more hands in here. Have so many of these children been abused as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of them. I mean, when you think about, like, for example, just just with child sexual abuse alone, it's uh, today it's that has been decreasing, but it's like one in ten children. One in ten children. If you go to church, just put those numbers together, and one of them has been. Sexually abused. So just with that topic alone, we have a lot of work to do, um, and we need to be as conscious and careful to do it the best informed way that we can, as we walk with our father with faith, and you know, just trying to do our best. Um, the tools are alone are not enough, and that's when we need the relationships, the churches, that those safe environments that allow us to, instead of living around with walls, that allow us to diffuse that and leave there holding hands with one another as we move on and try to do our best, all of us, all of us together. So that's it, I don't, I don't know if we have any more questions. but.